Welcome back to the Better Men, Better Ball Player Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Cobb. I want to thank you for joining us here in our 75th episode where we are joined by the great Andrew Wright. Coach Wright is currently the director of the Dominican Republic Baseball Operations for the New York Yankees. He's been doing the post since 2019. And formerly, he was the head coach at Charleston University in West Virginia from 2015 to 2019, where he took over a program. They went from the bottom to the top in the four years that he was there, from starting with 16 wins all the way to 41 wins in four years. In year three and year four, they claimed their conference championship and their conference tournament championship. They lost in the championship in year two. Talks about that they thought it was a fluke, end up winning it the next year, and then the other year he was a game away from the World Series. Two NCAA regionals, three consecutive school record for wins. Before that, he was also the he was head coach at Concord University in West Virginia, where they increased their roster from 24 to 38. They increased their staff from two people to five, set school records for wins there, two conference championships, appeared in two regionals where he also created and implemented the 1,000-hour project Get to Give Community Service Incentives. They improved their team GPA from 2.5 to over 3. He's also been assistant coaches at Concord University, at Georgetown Pratt, as well as West Virginia University. He's been an associate scout for the Milwaukee Brewers, but as of right now, he is in the player development department as the director of the Dominican Republic Baseball Operations for the New York Yankees. Just does an incredible job, one of the best. And if you are a ABCA member, which I highly suggest if you are a baseball coach, 100% get with the ABCA. But two, if you have not seen his ABCA presentation about staffing, it is unbelievable. Unbelievable. It was one of the most incredible presentations. And I can honestly say, like, I have the privileges uh, of having to speak with him on multiple occasions, and he's always been willing to share and um He's just a master of processes, man. He puts together systems, and um, his staffing stuff was incredible, and it's always been a challenge. And you, it's like running a business, or, you know, there's certain things that you're just never taught, and you don't learn until you're doing it. Uh, and and staffing is one of the things, uh, managing a staff, and it's a tougher thing. And, and Coach Wright does it really well and is able to understand leadership. And he really took a, he talks about it. Um, we get a chance to talk about it and how he just kind of changed his mindset with that when after he get a couple years in at Concord and <clears throat> how it just changed for him about how he's managing his staff and something that I've really took on myself and I, th- I think there's a lot of value in it for a lot of people but again if you have not checked out his ABCA videos his ABC presentation I believe it was in Dallas it was incredible about staffing again Andrew Wright so uh, let's get into it. My, I've got a ton of notes. So hopefully you guys uh, like the notes. If you, have, if you don't know where the notes are, they're in Podbean. Uh, that's where they're at. Um, I know Will Miner, the guys at Netting Pros, he'll share those out as well. Um, so make sure you follow them. Will Miner and Netting Pros guys, uh, they are improving pr- programs one facility at a time. Netting professionals specialize in design, fabrication, installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugouts, scoreboards, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Be sure to check out Will Miner and the Nang Pros because they continue to provide quality products and services to many recreation, high school, and college fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. 
Contact them today at 844-620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all the latest products and projects. Okay, definitely a great follow. He's always giving away, doing, doing giveaways, um, things like that. Like I said, he's posting a lot of notes. Uh, I'm, I'm very blessed to be part of the Netting Pros family uh, chat family uh, where he sponsors different uh, podcasts and content that um, are helping to grow the game in, in, in multiple ways. And uh, really fortunate to be part of that. So, again, we'll monitoring pros. The guys do it right. And I'm really thankful for them. So head on over to those guys. So, But uh, getting back to the podcast with Andrew Wright, this podcast is great. It's one of the guys I just love to talk to. He speaks my language. We've had multiple conversations. So it's awesome. He's just an awesome guy. And, and Coach Wright, I can't thank you enough, man. I appreciate you and all you do and um, the message you share. So... Hope you guys enjoy it. I know I did. Enjoy getting better with Coach Andrew Wright. Well, a little bit of what type of player you have, but understanding what markers you need to win baseball games. Okay. What are the things that are going to drive wins? After that, do my person are my personnel able to populate those numbers? And am I able to finagle what abilities we have inside of our program in order to create wins? You're going to see the, the power go off a couple of times. That happens yeah. in DR a lot. Sorry. But yeah, it's, it's, it's basically ch- chasing, chasing the deficiency. So the role, the role of a baseball team is to win baseball games, right? So, so how do you win baseball games? Uh, you either score runs or you prevent runs. So there has to be an imbalance of those two in order to produce wins. You chase the deficiency. What's keeping me from – and then you work your way down – uh, through that player development at the college level for me was about when you take over a, uh, I took over Concord, which was, we were successful. Um, Mm -hmm. so that was about elevating the program, but, but taking over Charleston was a bit of a different animal. So, you know, the program had won 13 games the year before I got there. So the solution is, uh, or what we, what you're trying to do is you're trying to, to figure out is what I'm going to do from a 10,000 foot view going to work and, and create an impact, uh, in the community, in the, in the school, in the players' lives, things like that. But at the core of that, you continue to get a paycheck based off of your ability to win baseball games, right? So, yeah. so the biggest thing that you got to look at and what we had been tracking for a long time at, at Concord was literally just that. The, the objective is to win baseball games. So there's two ways of doing that. There's, there are there's two things that go into that, I should say. There's run, run creation and run prevention. So then for me, you just chase the deficiency. When, when the wins aren't coming at the level that you want them to come at, then you need to chase the deficiency. Is it because I'm giving up too many runs? Is it because I'm not scoring enough? And you can neither have enough nor too, you know, you can neither have enough of, or too little of, of either of those respectively. So, so really what that looked like was trying to determine, again, defensively, where is the deficiency? Is it, is it a matter of athleticism? Uh, you, you go chase athletes. Develop the develop them as well as you can, uh, and then offensively as well. Um, you try to put yourself in a position to to do what you can to win run or win games at the college level, which is is a little bit different than the game that we're playing here in player development for professional baseball because we're playing a long game. Like we've got them at I've got some of these guys are 16 years old that wins and losses don't matter. I'm going to air quote say matter. They don't matter at this level 
you want to teach them how to win and the importance of being a Yankee and things like that. But what we're trying to do is win at the big league level. So that, again, is a longer play. We're not mm-hmm. going to hit and run as much. We're not going to bunt as much. We're not going to do uh, stupid stuff like that. Like, not stupid stuff. <laughs> at, at the college <laughs> level, it's a little bit different, yeah. right? You, you win now. Like, you win now. Uh, that's why if you came and saw us play uh, from an offensive standpoint, we just found ways to score runs. And uh, what we talked about with our teams was, you know, be all things to every situation. So we wanted each player within their particular skill set to be all that they could to any situation that came up. Now, that's going to be different for a Joey Miller. That's going to be different for a Colby Johnson, uh, things like that. Both of those guys are two very different skill sets. But at least within the skill set that they had, they could be what we needed them to be in order to, to win baseball games. And then when you collect that across the entire group, then you're able to put in the aggregate, you're able to win baseball games. Um, but again, I, I looked at our player development was a matter of chasing a deficiency, uh, trying to build the baseball players that we could in order to go out and, and fuel the winning machine, as we called it. So that, that's really what it came down to for me. And then just from an athleticism standpoint, we always had uh, an emphasis on on arms and athletes. When people, when I would call, especially my first year uh, when I took over at Charleston uh, and I was calling around to people to put together, we ended up putting together, a, I think a class of like 17 people in two months because mm. uh, I got hired in June and we had, we had to start that next in, in August. And I mean, we were going fast, like we were going fast and I wasn't going to have anybody slow me down. But the, the, the thing was when people would ask, well, what do you need? I'm like, brother, we won 13 games last year. I can take all you can get. Like right. we need, we need, we need arms and we need athletes because I believed in our ability, uh, or at least in the vision of what we were trying to do, that we were going to be able to turn that into and turn that into wins. We're going to have more athletic arms on the mound. We're going to have more athletes in every position, and then we're going to we're going to basically teach them the type of game that's going to going to help us win games at the college level. Because um, you've got to prepare to go out and win. It's almost like a football schedule when you think about it. Like you've got, you've got to turn around every weekend. You've got to be at your best and the margin for error is so small. So that's where a little bit of the game changes from college baseball to professional baseball, because you don't have that opportunity to regroup and, and go out and do it. Um, you know, over the course of 162 games, the major league level over the course of a 60 game season at this level, but we're playing, you know, five times a week here. Um, you've got a chance to reset a little bit quicker. And, and that's why the margin for error, you almost need to teach for that, that margin for error and protect. Uh, how do I want to say this? Build, build a style of baseball that, that protects you against um, kind of the hills and valleys of, a, of one style of offense, if that makes sense. So if you're, if yeah. you're going to be, if you've, got a, um, if you've got a bunch of Joey Millers, and I know you know Joey Miller, yeah. you've got a bunch of Joey Millers, uh, that's going to win a lot of games, but, it, but if you run into the wrong arm or things like that, you know, you need to be a little bit dynamic. Uh, that's where having the Colby Johnsons and the Brett Blevins and the, and the guys like that helps, uh, John Carlo, uh, um, John Franco Morello, sorry. Uh, guys like that, that comes in to help when you were trying to play the game, uh, and be all things to every situation. Like I was talking about. Yeah. Being athletic for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh man. And you're make I default. Adjust. I default. I default to athletes oh, in yeah. every situation. From even from an evaluation, like it probably at times 
um, broke ties that it shouldn't have broken, I guess, if, if that makes sense. I was more worried about playing the long game, uh, as long a game as I could at the college level uh, than I was on getting what could win now. Now, if we need to go out and get a junior college player, then we would go do that. Uh, and that's where you can look at what's going to help me win now. But but especially with the way that we ended up building the, the, the program at Charleston, where we were selling the idea of a five-year plan. Like you come in, you're going to redshirt. I don't care how good you are. Like unless, unless we have everybody in front of you clears out and we need you to play this year, then it, you know, we were, then we would do that. But we were selling it as the idea that you're going to leave here in five years with a, a graduate degree, um, an extra year of baseball under your belt. And we are going to heavily invest in the, in your development as a redshirt. We, you know, in, in, uh, in my last year, we won 41 games. We had, we had incredible athletes who were redshirting, like guys that would have hit in the middle of the order, uh, even for us, or hit in the middle of the order for other teams. And, and, and we had them redshirting, but it was nice to know that, that we had almost two things happening. We had, we had what's going to win now, and then we had what's going to win later. And it was just a, a plug-and-play type of system uh, that was built. It was built for longevity. Uh, and one where we could do a better job of predicting, you know, the ebbs and flows of, of the cycle of a program. Because the one thing I didn't want to do, and you see this a lot, is people will build, build to lean into that cycle of being good. We're going to put all our eggs in one basket. We're going to be good in three or four years. I didn't want that. Like, I wanted to be good always in every situation. I wanted to be able to, to build the type of program where the target was on our back. And that was... That was actually, as a side note, that was kind of how the messaging changed even at Charleston. We went from being the underdogs as a team that wasn't supposed to win. And in year one, we didn't. We won 16 games, and it was a, a bit of a dumpster fire. But, like, building what we needed to build in order to sustain success, you know, we turned it a uh, 16-win season into a 34-win season or 36-win season. I can't remember. In year two, lost in the championship game. People thought it was a fluke. We turned around. We win the conference championship, go to a regional, make some noise. And then you're, you're the, the third year after that, sorry, in year four, we win 41 games, you know, one went away from a World Series. And the messaging was, as, as our program matured, was we embraced the idea of the target being on our back. Rather than being the underdog, like I always felt that being an underdog, you have a built-in excuse. You've got like this parachute you can pull at any time when stuff gets too heavy or you don't do what you're like, something doesn't go your way. All of a sudden you pull that shoot and you're like, I'm good. It's uh, you know, we weren't supposed to win anyway. Well, I think there's a life lesson in that is that I want guys walking into a room, walking into an interview where the burden is, is on everybody else to beat you out of getting a job. Right. And you walk in with a type of confidence to say, I don't know what those other jokers are doing out there in, in the meeting room, in the waiting room, but you know, let's have a talk about why I'm the guy you should hire. And obviously not being that cavalier when they're talking, but having that kind of a, a confidence that, that fuels their preparation in order to go separate themselves before they even step foot in that room. So that was the big pitch. Even when you look back at, at the, uh, uh, at the way we built our program to have that five-year program where you think a stack of a hundred resumes, right? How many of those people, in, in a job market, how many of those people have an advanced degree? And just, I even rounded up, even 10% of them. Yeah. How many of those people play college athletics? Mm. Well, I'll even round up 3% of them. 
how many of those people played in the type of program that challenged you in the community, you know, to be a good person, to all of that sort of stuff like that. So just when you look at what we're trying to provide from a from an experience standpoint, what that provided for a, a peace of mind for parents, a peace of mind for a player to know that he was about to he was signing up for something that was bigger than himself. Um, that's where you could get people to come in and say, yes, I'm okay going to a division two program that is going to tell me where I've got division one programs that are asking me to walk on and I can go do this, or I can go to a, a junior college, or I can go to the D2 school down the street and play for them right away. Well, that's, you, you talk about, That's really what we had to lean in on, and I liked our pitch. I liked I liked how strong it was, um, and I liked that we were able to back it up because of the staff that we were able to build, and the emphasis we were able to put on player development that turned around, made players better, made them better people because we were able to provide more opportunities even off the field because of the the, the size of our. So even then, one of the. Uh, one of the things that we were getting to, and we were a year away from doing this, and I almost joked about it before I, before I walked off the stage in Dallas. Uh, I was gonna joke that anybody who wants to buy me dinner tonight, uh, I, I'll, feel, I will, uh, I'll explain to you why uh, I will be inviting Division I schools to our scout day next year. So you think about that, because oh. essentially what I wanted to turn us into was a four-year junior college, right? I was tired of losing players to junior colleges because what we were providing, there was the quick fix of going down the street, going to pot state where Doug does an incredible job and going to all these, these places in region 20 and going to get that out of the way and bounce out to division one. Well, what if we can provide that at a school like Charleston, where you can fast track your degree, you can be done in three years. If you redshirted for one year, you play for two years, you now have two years to go finish the degree somewhere else. Mm. And the type of development that we were trying to do from a player development standpoint could very much support that. And you know, it got it got some crooked looks when I talked about it with administration a little bit, and and rightfully so because you know why would you let your best players leave? Um, and I looked at it. We're going to be able to recruit better players. Like we're going to be able to recruit the elite oh, yeah. of the elite because we're turning ourselves into something that nobody else is doing, right? So from being able to invest in the player development side with all the stuff that we were doing from a technology standpoint, and and push our chips into making players better, and then and then becoming that outlet where here was the other piece of it too, not being scared that they would go to other schools, but being very open, like, hey, if you get a better opportunity, I, if my job is to make you, a, is for you to be a better person because you chose to play here and for you to be at your best self, then why would I get in the way of you doing something you wanted to do or, or a better situation, right? Mm -hmm. Very short-sighted and very um, uh, conceited on, on, on our part, you know, and, and very uh, insecure on our part. Uh, so, so the way that I looked at that was essentially um, I was going to be able to flip that into building the type of program where we had division one caliber players. And I do to this day feel that we had division one caliber players in our program because uh, we had a couple kickbacks that ended up kind of recruiting, like rebuilding their career and playing the way, playing incredible baseball. Um, but we were going to be able to build something that was going to be sustainable uh, and was going to be just a, a massive development tool and, you know, like we talk to them all, all the time about uh, but being a vehicle for a better life. And that was essentially the guiding principle uh, behind how we, how we drove our program. Finishing the thought about, you know, uh, building that, uh, 
that kind of machine, the development machine, as, as you could call it, uh, where essentially that was going to have a, a big, big emphasis on how, how we were going to be able to recruit people. And I felt that was going to be our only, our only defense against the idea of being able to go play at a Division One school. Our only defense against playing against another Division against, One school? Against, other, against players saying, well, I want to go play Division One. Well, okay, okay. okay. The compete, we, competing we had, we had that a lot. We were losing a lot of yeah. players to the idea of saying, you know, this is great, but I want to go play Division One." Right. We had a couple of kids that, and they ended up, and they ended up being able to do that, but what if we could have provided, you know, that redshirt year, uh, the two years of competition, uh, and then they jump out and, and go play at a Division One school? Like, now we, can, now we can sell you on the idea of why you should come here. And still realize that the you know life goal that you have had uh, to be able to like, go out and play like we we did have players that ended up transferring out our freshman of the year, um, Colton Bauer ended up leaving after his first year because of the idea he wanted to go play Division One, um, and he's starting at Ohio State now. Like so, it's very real. Like it's we can recruit those types of players. You just got to get them to believe in the vision of what you're trying to do now. It takes a very motivated, uh, very responsible, very capable person to come in and be able to do that. Um, and I don't think you're you're misrepresenting the process if you're if you're selling that to everybody. But it's uh, very much for me. Like I, I, I just feel like it was it was where our organization was go- or where our program was going uh, with the way we were able to build things and and try to provide that that extra opportunity. Uh, and other layers so that we would be competing with somebody else like or competing competing at a different game and th- that's kind of how I've looked at uh, running our program there's so many if you've got call it 15 schools trying to do the same thing if you're all trying to do the same thing yes somebody's going to win somebody's going to lose but there there's a log jam in some of that so there's a, there's a lot of dogs at the same bowl where if you can jump out look at things differently inventory, what the actual objective is, what problem are you actually trying to solve? You're trying to recruit the best athletes who want to get involved in your experience and they want to develop. Um, then you look at what, what rules are there that, that govern whether or not I can or can't, uh, can't do particular things. Um, and that kind of guides your decision-making. And, and then after that, it's, it's basically about, um, you know, basically about making sure you know what, what resources you have in order to be able to go out and, and support everything that you've sold. So when you look at it that way, if you, if you apply that decision-making template, if you will, to, to that situation and how we were going with, with the organization or with the program, we were identifying a gap in people's understanding of what you could do at the division two level. We were inventorying what we had at our, at our disposal uh, to be able to do things a little bit different. And then we were going to exploit that in the very good sense of the word, in the business sense of the word. Uh, we were going to exploit the advantage that we had, the inherent advantage that we had at Charleston. Like you look at, um, at what we were able to do from a staffing standpoint, uh, we were able to take that my first year at Charleston. We had a, a GA and a part-time assistant. And then by the time I left, we had, you know, there were eight people. And then the, the following year, I think we were going to have a, a 10 or 11 because it was going to, to branch out in specific jobs. And I think um, when you're able to provide that and provide it in a manner that is uh, where each person has a role and they just need to champion that role, 
then you're able to provide an experience that can rival what they're going to get down the street uh, at a Division One school where they do have more limits on, on coaching and how you can manage different things. So that's really where you saw us grow grow that. And, and basically it was it was exactly that. If you go back to if you go back to my days at Concord, it was myself and, and one assistant. And if you looked at our staff responsibility sheet, it was mine was a mile long. And then his was uh, you know, my assistant was a, an awesome on the field, like incredible on the field. Uh, so he was able to do what he was really good at with the pitchers. And I tried to clear a pass for him to do really good work. So I took everything else off on the plate. And plus at that time, I was much more of a micromanager. So I consider myself a recovering micromanager now where it still leaks in a little bit every once in a while. But um, to that, what you do when you try to build your, pro- build your program and build your coaching staff, you're trying to relieve pressure from your day uh, in order to provide a better experience. So when you inventory like, I mean, I'm getting bogged down with, with X, Y, or Z. Well, what, who can do X, who can do Y, and who can do Z and do them really well? They don't need to be uh, somebody with you know, 10 years of experience. That can be your way of, of allowing people to get their foot in the door and be a, char- in a part of something bigger than themselves that they can go out and, and build a resume. So that's really where um, anytime we added staff, it was about relieving pressure from the day-to-day in order to achieve the vision of the program that we wanted to achieve, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And it was a constant auditing process. So uh, I, am a, I, I am adamant about uh, you know, feedback loops and, and, and surveys and, and, and doing all of these things to keep my finger on the pulse on what's really going on within our, whether it's our program or whether it's in the academy here that I do the same thing with our staff here. Uh, I want their feedback. I need to know what's in the, in the way of them doing their best work. Because when I look at it from a leadership standpoint, uh, my job, the way that I look at it, you're going to have, uh, if you ask 10 people, you're going to get 11 different responses probably. But one of the jobs of a leader is, is based, one of the jobs of a leader is to make sure that everybody else does their best job, right? Or does their best work. So that is, that is what I feel my role is, is as a facilitator. Right. I am here to facilitate the best work for the for the staff that we have here. Um, so, again, to kind of sum that up, the, the job of a good leader is to make sure other people are good at theirs. Right. Are great. Mm-hmm. at theirs. I would even I would even venture to say great at theirs. And the majority of my day is is trying to unload stuff off of people's plate uh, and put them in a position to do their best work. So when I when I reflect on that early in my head coaching career. I wasn't doing my best work because of how loaded up my plate was. I had a vision for the program that I was so stubborn. I wasn't going to let it go, uh, but I was going to barrel through it. And then piece by piece, you end up figuring out like there's a way, there's a way to grow this and build this so that I can just facilitate the work of everybody else. Um, And if you look at it in my last year at Charleston, uh, Ryan Hunt, who is with the Yankees now was practically running the program like he he was you know he was in charge of the day-to-day from from things like that anthony zona was was on top of the pitching pitching staff uh ian mcdonald was running our our uh our red shirts he he was hired as our red shirt coordinator to try to to really invest in that in that program um and it, it really freed up 
and, and what part of that was and what made that so successful was that was their job. Like there was clarity. There was a ton of clarity to what was expected of them. And then there was a ton of support on me making sure that I cleared a path for them to do their best work. So I, I could have done the, the 15 year ago me and tried to do everything myself and, and, and said, you go stand over there until I need you. Like that doesn't work. I, I know that doesn't work because I tried it and it, I failed at it. Like it, you need to be able to look at yourself as a leader. You need to be able to say how, you know, do I need to do it or does it just need to get done? Right. Like that, oh, yeah. that was kind of a, a mantra that I have had to remind myself of, especially when there are things happening here. Cause there's, you know, I've got a staff of kind of morning meetings. We'll have up over 30 people. Hmm. And, and for now that's including, you know, it'd be somewhere between typically around 25 and you'll have some people listen, listen in from the States and things like that. But as far as who I'm managing, you know, there's a couple dozen people that we are trying to do the job. And, and if I'm, you know, the old me would be like, don't worry about it. I'll get it. Cause I, I'm really bad at saying no. I'm still bad at saying no. I'm just more intentional about, about saying no. Um, but that's something I have to ask myself, do I need to do it or does it just need to get done? And if I can, if I can convince myself of that, when I'm, when I'm figuring out what needs to be done for the benefit of the DR Academy, then, then we're in much better shape. Yeah. Cause then it's always like my, my question for there is like, well, how's it getting done? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, well, it's just the level yeah. of that, you know? Yep. There, you have to sacrifice a little bit of that. Again, that micromanagement part, you've got to yeah. be okay with, you've got to be okay with a little bit of style change as long as the finished product is what you want. So actually a, a, one of the, the quips that I've had to come up with in order to, to do that, and it also safeguards me against getting involved too much, is I'll tell our staff, like, I don't need to see the map, just send me a postcard, right? Because they'll come in worrying about, like, well, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. I'm like, don't, like, I don't, it's not that I don't care, it's that I trust you. I trust you. Once you get to the end of this project, send me the postcard. And, you know, we can celebrate how you got there later, but I trust you to go out and get that job done. And those are, those are two ways that I've had to, they're almost like, you know, restrictor plates that I've had to, to put in to, to make sure I slow myself down because I can get uh, overbearing at times. I can get over-involved, um, you know, as a bit of, as a bit of a shared vulnerability, but it, but to me, I think it, it really helps keep me grounded. Uh, and certainly I think you, if you manage the, you manage the quality, um, and then you give a little bit of freedom to the process, I think you'll be surprised at what people can come up with as well. Cause that's the other thing is if there's that over, that over management of, of how people are doing things, you're stifling creativity, you're doing the opposite of what a multiplier should do in an organization where the best thing that you can do as a leader is put people in the best position to do their work so that they can go out and multiply the, you know, the efforts and, and, and multiply your vision. I love that. Be a multiplier. Yeah. Actually wow. the book, the book multipliers by Liz Weissman is a, is a, it was a game changer for me. Um, absolutely. I think it's a must read for, for any leader. It's actually, um, I, I've, I've referenced it dozens of times. Um, you know, and it's been, it's been a big piece of my own personal development and something that's been important for me. Who'd you say was the author? Liz Weisman. Okay. 
I love that. Just even the the verbiage. You know, a lot of times it's just a matter. Just even they they the in language there's clarity on language too. You know, and the multiplier these automatically gives you a a visual of leadership. Yeah, being a multiplier. Yeah, that's yeah. great. And, you know, and especially yeah, I think another, as most leaders. Yeah, you hit on another word that is incredibly important to me, and it goes back to that clarity thing. Like when you talk about managing a staff. Uh, managing the processes within your or your program. Uh, I'm speaking specifically to high school or, or, or college or upper shit. I mean, I mean, I'm talking about professional baseball as well. Like clarity is incredibly important. Like what is my job? What are, what am I being evaluated on? Um, where do I have latitude to make decisions? Uh, you know, what at the end of the day, am I going to wear as, as a responsibility. So even, even in our staff responsibility sheet that we, that I actually got from Greg Van Zandt while I was at West Virginia, I thought it was brilliant. And I loved how, one of the things I loved about Greg was how intentional he was with everything he did. Like there was a reason behind it. He was so careful with his words, the whole thing. And that really rubbed off on me because semantics was a big deal. Like he would, there were times when he would grill me on words I was choosing because they weren't representing what my, what it was I was trying to say. And that was the type of education I needed at that point in my career to go out and then be a head coach. We implemented the same staff responsibility sheet. And it even seemed silly doing it for myself and Levi Maxwell um, to try to be clear on what the, what the roles were, but it was incredibly, it was incredibly necessary. Uh, and then as the, it started to grow and started to grow. And then I, I, that's, that whole process started to morph as I was like year by year, people grow. So I have to recognize that. So essentially what we ended up doing was at the end of every year, I would clear out all of the responsibilities and put them off to the side. And there are four categories. There's primary responsibilities, uh, areas of input, administrative duties, and, and um, areas of accountability. So throw all of that out, out like out, right? Uh, and then figure out what are the remaining staff that I have or, or the staff that I know is not moving on? Who's still going to be here? What are they good at? What do they need to be exposed to in order to be more prepared for their next job? Right? So then I would be able to build in. If I was looking for an assistant, I would be able to build in to the strengths of the existing staff. So that, that would give me more clarity. You're going to go back and use that word again. Give me more clarity on what it was I was actually looking to hire. Because I think a lot of hiring mistakes are made through a lack of intention. But I can tell you that we were incredibly intentional about understanding what our contingency plans were. If we interviewed five people, we had a contingency plan for how we were going to manage our staff based off of all five of them, right? If it's gonna be a pitching guy, then maybe I'm gonna spend more time on defense. If it's gonna be uh, you know, someone with a hitting specialization, then I'm gonna spend more time on pitching. Uh, and that's where I had to be a little bit of a Swiss army knife and, and be okay with that. Um, but again, that just going through and intentionally doing that process allowed me to make better decisions. And, and I think that was probably what, that's one of those like keystone behaviors that sets everything else up in your program. When you can be incredibly intentional about the people you surround yourself with, why you've surrounded yourself with them what roles they're going to have, then the rest of it, you, it just kind of flows a little bit easier, right? 
So that, that was a, a big, big piece for us. Mm. I love this. I love it. And then I can't tell you how much I need it. Um, just as a great, I think just like all the time, like, and even just the, uh, even like you said, the constant feedback loops, um, the constant, just knowing where everybody's at. Like, I just want to be like with my guys that I have, like, help me, like, even asking them, do you know what your role is? You know, like, right. am I being clear? How can I be more clear? You know, um, just those kind of things mm -hmm. to, to be able to empower guys. You, know? you, you hit on another one that's very important to me. So from if my job as a leader to set a vision, right, as a head coach, like if you look at in big organizations, you've got the CEO, you've got the person who makes all the decisions, you've got the COO who makes sure everything runs the way that they're supposed to. Uh, and then you get the CFO and all those things like that. Well, it was funny because on my on my uh, staff responsibility sheet, those were actually under my primary responsibilities. It, I even put CEO, CFO, COO, Ooh. all of those things. Like I had to wear all of those hats at once. So part of that was how do I best lead a group of people? And if I'm going to be managing any group of people, and it's something we ended up adopting here, but it was something that I, I made very clear with our program in Charleston was there are three main things and three values that I try to wake up every day and try to check these boxes. And they are communication, empowerment, and accountability. So communication, am I communicating what I need? And if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, and I, we actually dealt with something today where one of our staff members came in and, and uh, was explaining a situation that happened. And uh, before, we, before we really you know, kind of dropped the hammer here, like have expect, expectations been communicated? Um, and, and the same thing from an empowerment standpoint, like if people aren't doing the job that we're expecting them to do at the level we're expecting them to do it at, have we cleared a path for them to do their best work? And then from an accountability standpoint, if, if we have, you know, if we've communicated everything that we're supposed to, right, if we put them in a, the best position possible to do their work, then now we can, we can look back and say, we're going to hold you accountable for this. Like, and, and there are two ways to hold people accountable. And this is where, like, for me, accountability gets a bad rap because it's a word that's like, you know, it, it, it's the stick, not the carrot, right? Like, but for me, it should be the carrot and the stick. Like, accountability should be, if you're responsible for the outcome of your actions, then you should be responsible for when things go well and you should be recognized for it. That's a way of feeding into the environment of your group of people and, and that's an investment that you get to, to put into that group of people in order to get their best work tomorrow. But if people walk around underappreciated because you aren't applying accountability as I define it, um, then you're going to end up having to uh, hold them accountable because they're going to be, they're going to lack engagement. So then you're going to have to hold them accountable by the, the everybody else's view of what accountability means. Does that make sense? There's, there's a preventative there's preventative accountability, and that's with recognition, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Different people can have different um, different opinions on that, but for me and the way that it makes sense in my head, I am trying to do all that I can to bolster the you want to call it like the the environment or the, the cultural ecosystem. Like how is our how is our group of people who are working together toward a common goal? How are they going to withstand changes? Whether they're um, you know, invisible changes to the environment or whether they're like very noticeable changes. For example, a pandemic hits, how is your group of people going to, going to manage that? Are you built strong enough in order to weather whatever storm comes up? 
So to me, I would lean on those three things. Am I communicating the vision of what I want? Am I communicating the expectations of what I want with clarity and consistency? Uh, the empowerment thing. I can't just tell you to go do a job and then expect you to come back and, and get it done and overcome all odds. Like if my job as a leader is to make sure that you're in the best position to be successful, then I have a hand in your success as much as you do, right? Sometimes more. Like mm -hmm. if I'm setting you up, if I'm legitimately setting you up for success, then I expect your skill set to be successful. Then I can predict your the outcomes a little bit better, right? But if I don't set you up for that, two things are going to happen. One, you're going to fail more often than not to the standard that I'm expecting. And two, you're going to leave. You're going to walk out the door because you're going to be like, I, I'm, I'm out. Like this is like, this is where, you know, the, the pressure of doing things, uh, producing results when you don't have the support of doing your best work, that's where it catches up with you. And I've seen it. I, I've seen it in, in college programs. I've seen it in a way that I ran college programs for a while. Um, where people want to be supported, they want to be heard, they want to be included in the process, all of that. And the more that you can do that, the more you're investing in that cultural ecosystem to be able to withstand anything that comes up. Does that make sense? Sure does. Very clear. They want to be supported, heard, included in the process for sure. Yeah. Hmm. Man. So, like, I mean, as I guess, as you're trying to be creative with all of these things, as, you, as you've come up with, I mean, you're because you're like the staff guy now, you know. And <laughs> is this just something you just saw, like, hey, this is where I we just have to go in order for the program to grow? Like, you just kind of got it dove into staffing and trying to be more creative with the staff and empowering others. Yes. So it's more about there not being a finish line for me. There's a finish line, but it keeps moving, and because I keep moving it. Like there's, there's not going to, we're not going to get a program and I'll think back to my college days, that program was not going to stagnate. Like I wasn't going to let it because I don't know if it was my own, uh, I don't know what it was that was driving me to, to constantly be, and sometimes I, I probably seek feedback to a fault. Um, but I always think there's a way to do things better and different, um, because if the, the conditions are changing around us and we don't identify and inventory and, and audit our programs on a yearly basis to define where are those, where are those changes coming? Then we're eventually like, it's all going to fall apart type of thing. So I wanted to have so much forward steam going ahead um, that it like nothing was off the table. Nothing was off the table about changing or looking at differently. And I can tell you if I coached, if I coached, if I continued to coach the way I was coaching in 2010 and 11, the way that I coached my first year as head coach, it would be a disaster. The rest of my career would have been a disaster. But it wasn't until a couple of years into that that I started thinking, like, there's more here. There's more here. I've got to get out of my own way. I've got to, like, I've got to look around, like, peek around corners where nobody else is looking to try to create an advantage uh, in order to mitigate the lack of advantages that we have in the program that we're at. And actually, I... I did a blog in my last my last couple of years that was only like seven seven or eight uh, blog posts, but it's called the championship progress. You know, it was actually something that I dusted off from from like my first year at Concord. Mm. So I wrote this idea. I wrote the first blog post I wrote in 2010, and it was about trying to bring a national championship to a small town in in, in West Virginia and trying to get to Cary, North Carolina, and all these things. 
So my thought was, and this big grand idea was that I was going to, I was going to document it. Well, in a form of, the, the formal blog post ended up getting put up in probably 2018. Uh, but I can tell you that like books like this, the six books I've got sitting on my desk over here are, are the informal blog of it, right? Like the, the right. reflections that come with, with figuring out like, how can I look at this differently? Um, what advantages can, can we catch up on and things like that? And I guess the way that I would put it also is that I identified this, this concept that I wanted, I wanted to live my own life by. I wanted it. You know, there's the idea of, of redeeming qualities and separating characteristics, right? So a redeeming quality is something, to me, is something that picks up the slack of the deficiencies that, that you have in another area. Uh, and it's the, yeah, but, like when they're taught, like, let's say that I had a, a redeeming quality, and he's, he's really good at this, but he's got all these things he's not good at. Uh, and I look at it the other way is I want to take that, what was that redeeming quality and make a separating characteristic because I elevated everything else that I had dominion over uh, in order to be, to be better at my job. Or even the same thing, to apply that to how you run your program. Like, are we going to be a good program because we're athletic? And if that's the only thing you're hanging your hat on, then, then that's a redeeming quality, right? If you're not managing your dugout well, if you're not... You know, you're not treating your players well, things like that. You want to be able to prop up those those separating characteristics to exactly that, being separate separating characteristics. So that was that was a big a big piece for me that has has guided, you know, where to look um, and always kind of pushing that that finish line far away from because I I uh, I have goals, I have I have professional goals that I would like to one day accomplish, but what's at the top of that mountain? Like what's after that? If it's at the top of the industry, then literally what is after that? So you have to continue to, for me, while I have identified there are things that I would like to do in my career, there are still things that I have to look at um, of how am I going to continue to push that? So if I ever do get to the last job I'm ever going to have, it's, I'm not putting it, I'm not putting cruise control on. I can, that's just not in my nature. It's going to be, how can I, if, if, I, if there's nowhere to go from here, how can I change the circumstances of what we're doing to make them better than they've been done before? Because I think a lot of how people do their job is a hand-me-down, is a hand-me-down from how it was done previously. And there hasn't been an intentional like emptying of the pockets to determine what is the objective of what I'm trying to do. And I'll go back to what I explained before. What's the objective of what I'm trying to do? What are the rules of what I'm trying to accomplish? And then what are the resources I have to accomplish that objective? When you go with that clarity, uh, I think that that really changes things. Because for me, uh, when you look at the rules, like the rules are like those immovable objects in, in whether it's the NCAA rules or whatever rules govern your, your team or league or things like that. Those are immovable objects, but there are a host of or, or sorry, those are the immovable objects. There are a host of movable objects um, that people think are immovable because of these, uh, just this hand-me-down opinion of, of how things are supposed to be. I can't tell you how many people looked at me wrong when I was trying to tell them, we're going to grow our staff by adding student assistance. Like, you can't do that. Like, show me. Like, you show me, I'll stop. Like, it's, it's not... Uh, 
you know, we were able to, you know, it wasn't, it's not a loophole. It's just the way that it is. Like there, there's just looking at your resourcing and inventorying what you have at your disposal and then trying to solve that problem of providing the best player experience possible is what really motivated us to continue to, to look at it. But you have to have that to circle back. And this would probably, this probably would have turned what was a long winded answer into a shorter one. Uh, you have to, you have to have a guiding principle that literally can adapt to every new reality that you're in. So if, if our guiding principle at Charleston, which was, um, you know, we wanted to build the most comprehensive student athlete experience possible every day that changes because the environment around us changes. So our approach has to change, right? So we, we have to look at different ways to solve those problems. Um, because every day it's going to be a different set of problems and it's going to be that goal line is going to move for us. So we don't have to worry about ever meeting it and getting complacent. Having a mission, you know, begins mm -hmm. a mission and vision. Uh, yeah. It's funny. It's funny how, you know, just being a leader too, like it's funny how when, you know, you have those standards and objectives, you're saying it for the outward and when you change yourself and when you look inward and change, like you said, like you said, you essentially changed yourself in the ways that you viewed leadership. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden now that's how you just grow, you know, mm -hmm. and that's, and then things around you then changed, you know, like the old adage is when you change the way you look at things, the things mm -hmm. you look at change, you know, and it's, it sounds basically yeah. you, you kind of went to work on yourself, found this mission, found this new mission, found this new guiding principle. And then all of a sudden then everything, you know, kind of changed with it. Yeah. Yeah. It was about building. And, and again, I even think I've referenced this in the, in the talk in Dallas was, You've got to build a bold vision and one that that is you're not going to handcuff yourself and create a hard and fast finish line. So at one point we said, uh, at one point our, our our vision was to create the most comprehensive student athlete experience in the country. Well, what if in 20 years, like it's not just the country we're competing against? You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, and and the way that I look at it, you're in the people movement and people improvement process or in the people movement and people improvement business, regardless of what you're doing, whether it's being a college baseball coach uh, in professional baseball and manage a wrench factory. Like, I, I don't, I don't care what it is. Your job is, is directly tied to how you manage and lead people and manage processes and lead people. I would say, cause I, I don't like using the word management when it comes down to, to moving people. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think that's, to me, that that's what it is. You, you you've got to be bold with it, and you can't be scared about saying it, because I, I think the more you shy away from being bold, I think you you end up putting a limiting these limiting beliefs on your people around you. There's you, you there's there's messaging that you give in everything that you do, right? Like how you act, how you respond to situations. You're you're speaking volumes into what's really behind the curtain, as far as uh, you know how you feel about how good or you know, how good you could be as an organization. Yikes. So good. Coach. Love it. Um, so, and then how, if knowing what you know now, I'm just thinking of like development wise, because mm -hmm. you, you had so many development processes and, you know, like you said, you went through technologies, knowing what you know now, how would any of those development processes have changed or like how would they have done differently or what would you suggest or what do you advise now for development? Uh, the mechanics of it wouldn't change. I, I think that's the mechanics of it wouldn't change. You figure out okay. where you want to be, 
figure out where you're at, and then devise a plan on how to close that gap. So, you know, we would even talk about it at Charleston, something I do myself at the end of each year, uh, do a growth gap, grade yourself on, on things and areas of where you're at. And that can, you can zoom in and do that on how, what, how good a player is getting or, or not. And then um, you can define a better, a better plan moving forward for that player. Uh, I think a lot of the things that we were doing, again, the mechanics of what we were doing while we were at Charleston, I don't know that I would change them. I think maybe some of the, we might refine some of our processes for sure. But I think, you know, the way that we did test and retest, like we would test our players in, in a pro style workout at the start of every year to get a baseline on where they're at. We test them again throughout the year. But each year there was a particular date, day one pro day was my way of determining each year is the average of our top 50% moving up or is it moving down? And you could see on the, on that chart, it was year to year, year to year comparisons, then comparisons to year one. And, and really the comparison to year one was more from a recruiting standpoint than it was anything else. Uh, because I wanted to show the progress that we had made. And we shared this with everybody, like part of the pitch, uh, from a recruiting standpoint was explaining this stuff, mm-hmm. explaining that you were, we were going to track this. Like we're not, we're not flipping coins here. Like some of the information we're dealing with might be a little bit, and certainly now that I know what I know and what I've been exposed to now, some of the stuff we were using as markers to whether or not we were good, they're, they're probably not the best markers to use uh, in terms of, of professional player development. But from the college side, what we did, we, and, and this is kind of what I explained to our guys, is when you don't know where to start, you start where you're at. Yeah. So what information do we have available to us? Let's let these markers grow with the program as we go, but we have to have a baseline of things that we're measuring in order to determine what drives wins and what doesn't. So when you look at our, uh, for example, we did the, the quality, quality at bat chart. Mm-hmm. It wasn't quality at bat. Like that was a quality at bat. It wasn't calculated like an average, like everything had a point system to it, whether it was positive points or negative points. And it was, it was a system that I had borrowed from, uh, from a friend of mine from another school and over the course of time, we got our feet kind of got taped to the bicycle with that because we were tracking everything over several years and we were able to define trends. When our quality at bat score was above a 1.5, we won 87% of our games. Yeah. When our quality at bat score was below a one, we won 10% of our games. So why would we not devise our offensive plan on producing those quality at bats? Right? That's what the information that we had then. Um, and then it actually, that kind of morphed into getting anti-quality at bats where it kind of hit me one summer where it was like, if, if we only win 10% of the time when our quality at bats are below a one, then why aren't we trying to prevent that on the pitching side? And, and we didn't really make it as actionable other than because we were kind of early in that process, other than just tracking it, other than just tracking and then chasing the deficiency. What is causing that person's quality at anti-quality at that score to be so high and if it's walks or some of the some of the answers were pretty um, pretty obvious but but in the grand scheme of things it was it was it was good and and for me it was the it was the best we could do with the information we had at hand Mm -hmm. i think that's what probably scares a lot of people away from tracking things is they don't think that the what they're tracking is as elegant as 
as what they have in professional baseball or some of the, the large uh, Division One schools. But honestly, like, there's stuff that you can track that hopefully can at least move the needle and create clarity into how you're going about your business as an offense. Yeah. So markers like... Oh, oh, yeah. Well, what, what markers? That's like, what markers would you suggest? Run scoring from, from third with less than two out. Like, you know, bunt for a hit, moving runners. Like, little things like this that in that football schedule style, mm-hmm. you've got to lay it all out there, man. It's freaking it's, – it's game five, six, and seven of the World Series every weekend. If you're playing – if you think about it that way. Like, there's, there's something to be taken – there's something to be said – for the length of the season and being able to to manipulate uh, sample sizes that make things usable or not, which I completely understand, and that's something that my mind has been just completely expanded to, like uh, that there's some of that stuff had such a small sample size that it was probably unusable. Right. But at least if it shows that you can guide your offense based off of these markers. Yeah, or even guide practicing too. Probably, you know, you're guiding development. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, the things that you need to work on to make a player better are the things that are going to drive those those numbers up anyway. But then when you look at the game polish, um, a lot of that I would put on and we made a quality base running uh, rubric uh, that I'll actually I'll share with you. And you can take a look at that uh, that had to do with preparedness, uh, decision making. Like was that like the. Was it like the spectrum, like plus three, minus three? Yes, it was. Yeah, yes, I think was. that was like one of the last times that we had talked. Um, yeah. I think that was when we touched base about that because that's where I was. Because yeah. I had since went now to like a weighted quality at bat system when I'm like, yeah. you know, now we have a quality pitch system. And, yeah. you know, it's something I went over with Jimmy Jackson. I'm not sure if you did Jimmy or not. Yeah. Um, but, you know, went over with him about it. And then uh, my buddy Dean Peterson, he's a pitching coach at Frostburg. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we've – we've been touching base about it. Cause same kind of thing. Like, you know, like uh, how can we be, like you said, anti-quality of fat, you know, on the right. side of things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would love, I would still love that and see, you see where I was, where I was with that. Cause I have a guy who's doing that where I could, you know, it would be nice to kind of like let him empower him to. Right. So that. Yeah, no. It, and it's, it, for me, it was about the game polish. There was a lot of things that get, that you can capture a lot of wins if you just play the game with more intention than other teams do, if that makes sense, especially in, I mean, it happens in professional baseball. I see it all the time. Like we're dealing with the lowest level of professional baseball right now. And it's a snowball fight sometimes. Like they're literally the balls going all over the place. We're doing, you know, whatever Uh, that's going to happen at levels where there's, you're still working on refining, um, refining what it needs to look like. But, in order to take a group of, and this is the challenge that high school coaches have and college coaches have with a limited season, is you've got to take a group of people, your objective, going back to the objective rules and resources like template that I try to apply to decision-making, your objective is to win baseball games. Now, is there, is there an undercurrent of development that needs to happen? Absolutely. But when it comes to Friday, Saturday, Sunday, winning baseball games, there, there are times you have to do things that go a little bit against the long play uh, in order to win in order to win games. And I understand that, you know, I, again, we just we tried to go so much being all things to every situation, catch, capture low-hanging fruit. Like we had a – it's unrealistic, but we wanted 100% of runners to score from third and less than two out. 
I don't care if he had to kick the ball. Like, I, I don't care. Like, I just wanted, <laughs> I just wanted that guy to score. Yeah. Uh, because over the course of, of the season, the amount of times that, that you can collect those runs, the, the amount of times that you can make good decisions on defense, the amount of times you can make good decisions on base running, you're going to capture wins by default uh, is the way that I felt in a, in a shorter, a smaller sample size and things like that. Now, with that, and that, that kind of, that kind of thinking could scare away, you know, professional teams because, mm-hmm. oh, that's not really how it goes. Like, yeah, I get it, but you put me in a different, in a different environment, then there are different problems to solve and we'll just go pro- solve those problems. Like, I don't talk about quality at-bats anymore. That's not, you know, we're playing a longer game and there are smarter people than I, than I am that are, that are determining what we, what, what determines success. And that's, mm-hmm. that's how we're, we're, uh, investing all of our decisions into into that mm. so yeah i guess that's a good determinant so it really comes down to sample size i'm really looking at how many yeah i guess determining your amount of games how you're trying to win now to be able to determine kind of those winning markers mm-hmm. yep and you don't and that's what we did. We, we determined, we took all of our quality at bat numbers and I had Thomas Stallings, who was our assistant at the time, pour through all of the data for a couple of years, two or three years and piece together. What are the winning percentages at different levels of our quality at bats? And again, this is us dealing with the information that we had, right? Having zero access to anything else other than what we had in my filing cabinet. It was just sitting there. So then what we were able to do is take all of that information we had a, a team average, we had our goal, and then on our game planner sheet, what we did, rather than a, a traditional dugout lineup card, we had a, what, I, what we called a game planner sheet that Robert Haggerty uh, introduced to me originally, and then we ended up beefing it up with our quality at-bat scores and, and some other things like that. So it was completely color-coded. Each player would get a last two weeks color code, like their, they have last two weeks column, and then their season total of quality at bats, and it would either be colored in three three colors, red, orange, or green. So if you were below the team average, it was red. If it was mm-hmm. between the team average and the team goal, then it was orange, and then above that was green. So it held me accountable as well because on the weekend, what I would do is when I would make the lineup, I put the lineup in, and I have my three highlighters, and put all the lineup in the lineup. There would be a bunch of green. Now, that stopped a lot of people from banging on my door on Monday morning saying, why wasn't I playing? That's it. Right? So, again, it's that clarity thing. Like, here are the, we are literally giving you the, the rules, the, the answers to the test. Yes. So, there are some times, though, where we have to, you know, you have to make decisions based off athleticism or, you know, defense or things like that. But my goal was, and I, I completely welcome any time a player wanted to come in and talk to me, I got no problem talking to anybody. Uh, about anything that's on their mind but when they would come in we would we would reference that like and and that's why we also created uh the development program that's why we created uh we did as many the development program was another opportunity for guys to populate uh, quality at bat scores that's why we would play competitively and practice a lot and chart everything to try to to try to get that information too because the best thing that you can do uh for the engagement of player number one on your program to player number 55, uh, which at one point we did have 55, you've got to, you've got to attach some light at the end of the tunnel 
uh, for each of them from a baseball playing standpoint. Uh, and that allowed us to do that, to weight that evenly and then to be armed with information when they would come in and say, like, how come I'm not playing my quality at bat scores X, Y, or Z? And, and usually people didn't, didn't argue that statement. They would come in and say, well, I was two for three last week or, you know, whatever. And, and it, uh, it was always tied to just good decision-making on our point and, and making informed decisions. Because I, I don't have, I'm not a wizard. Like I'm not a forecasting. I think I've read in super forecasting that, you know, sometimes our ability to forecast is, is as good as flipping coins. Um, so what that makes me feel good about just knowing that I have a plan on making decisions. The quality of my decisions are based off of the quality of information that I have. And that to me is why as a leader, I try to do everything I can to be transparent and communicate as much as I can. Because if, if the people around you are going to be charged with making decisions on a daily basis, and be charged with owning those decisions, then the best thing that you can do as a leader is inform them. And now when you think about that and apply that to a player standpoint, they've got decisions to make. They've got, they've got decisions to say, how am I, you know, am I going to go in and talk to Trey on, on Monday and, t- and ask, like, why am I not playing? You know, am I going to go in and am I, am I going to flip the table because I'm not playing next time I see my name not in the lineup? Like, there are ways to communicate and, and, and remove the ambiguity that is going to exist with a lack of communication in order to make things just run smoother. Like that's, yeah. to me, that's, that's a, a big piece of, of why we were so transparent with this information. And that's why even like our decision-making process was posted right there on the wall. Yeah. Like, and if there was a discrepancy, I will talk to you about it. If there's mm-hmm. a reason why there's a bunch of guys in red, right. I'll talk to you about it. Right. Yeah, that could be a whole other issue, or yeah, there's just a sound other issue that where you had to make a decision based off of something that came yeah. up. Oh, totally get it. Yep, and then like yeah, totally get it. That's phenomenal. So, and then like I guess just like honestly, just like and here's a coaching question, just in my mind, like yeah. how how to manage all of that. Do you ha- like would your players be in charge of keeping track of that, or did you, that where is that where you came in with everybody's staff? You had the staff kind of keeping track of all quality bats, keeping track of your base running uh, points. You know, are you how are you managing that during game? So we we the, by the time we get to the base running system, we had um, we had an assistant coach that was in charge of that. As our director of player development, Alec Porterfield, who was a, a wizard with that stuff, he actually ended up creating a we had an i we had a couple of iPads in the dugout. So rather than doing the old pen and paper book, he actually made an Excel sheet that had drop downs and and everything. So it was just like okay, what happened there? Boom, 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 and then it calculated it. So there was there wasn't that Monday morning yeah. with their head stuck in a computer because that's and I would I would recommend doing that as much as possible. Find as much as you can automate, throw onto a an Excel sheet or a Google Doc and and, and put it put it in an iPad in the dugout. Um, but there it was funny that early on we had uh, players would do that and, and it would get quite animated in the dugout because a player would come in and say, That was a hard hit behind drive, what are you doing? Yeah, you know, give them the wrong, the wrong uh, points, find the wrong points, and and guys would get chirpy about it. But I would honestly, I I loved it. Like, yeah, get into it. Like, that's right. At least you know they're brought in. We had them. Get it harder next time. That's it. You don't have to fight him about it, or arm wrestle and just finish the the conversation because we've got a game to play. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so uh, no, it was fun, and it's it's a way to keep those guys engaged. And the the good thing is about the base running one is that's that's another way to put something in 
and not an eye to me it's not an eye wash type of type of thing it's a way to to track behaviors that are happening in the game and then as a coach you can define you know are are we are the reasons are what we're tracking is bad is the reason that's happening is it because of a lack of preparation uh, or a lack of awareness like or a lack a lack of information so you know I, I talked to our base runners down here about this um, a couple of weeks ago, two things you can really do as a base runner that, that are going to help you is be informed and prepared. You know, like we do, Matt Tallarico is our base runner coordinator. He's a genius. Um, they do, and our Carlos Vidal, Rainier Ocoa, Victor Ray are our base running coaches down here. They do a tremendous job. So the preparation standpoint, that's getting taken care of. Now the informed point, this is where a lot of, pe- a lot of players falter they're not informed enough. Like, do you know the situation? Do you know the outs? Do you know, like, the outfield? Like, all of that stuff. Do you know where all those things are? Then, are you have you watched enough from the dugout to determine when this happens, I'm going to do this, so on and so forth. So, there, there's an element where if they can be informed and prepared, they're going to go out and make good decisions. So, if you think about how much that parallels what I talked about from a decision-making template, if, if I'm informed and I'm prepared, then the quality of my decisions are going to, are going to follow suit the quality of solving problem solving as well. So it applies to base running and, and running a, running a program. Well, it applies to just uh, leading people, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, leadership's about, you know, influencing decision-making and make, yeah. being able to do that, you know, and so absolutely you're just making better people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Holy man. That's just great. Uh, phenomenal. Uh, phenomenal stuff, man. Um, the reason you're not performing, lack of preparation, lack of information. Awesome. I love the Excel spreadsheet too, man, just the drop down stuff. Um, you know, it's all with it. Now we can get iPads and people can do it on their phones too. Yeah. It's just depending on how big it is. Um, really cool. I, I guess my question is with the base running, and Taylor, I know Taylor could be great with this, but like when you're giving points, because like I'm not really, I guess that's my next step, just talking to you, trying to get better with that is like when it was like the plus three, minus three system. Is it based off of what they did or what they wait on the decisions they made and this isn't, and it was either plus three, whether it might be like a dirt ball read, whether like a minus three was like not going a dirt ball read. Yes. So missing opportunities was a way to, there was, if I remember there were three categories that mirrored themselves positively to. to yeah. Right. Uh, there was technique. You would get docked points for bad technique on something. Um, you get docked points for, um, and I'm, I'm dusting off my memory here. Today. Yeah. Charleston, but, but for uh, anticipation and awareness. Yeah. So I think it was those three things, technique, awareness, and anticipation, I think. Um, but I know that anticipation was one of them because, uh, you know, if you're anticipating the things that you're supposed to anticipate, you're also going to be an informed and, and prepared base runner. Yeah. Uh, but if you're like surprised that the ball got thrown in the dirt, you know, when you knew the guy was throwing a breaking ball or you knew it was a heavy breaking ball count, then, man, that's on you. Like, you know, we need you at your best and that because that, to me, base running is one of the one of the lowest hanging fruits to to add value to a game, whether it's at the high school level or even the college level. Um, the, be- the best base running teams and the teams that can exploit the weaknesses uh, are the ones that, that usually maximize, not even pound for pound, they go like, you want to call it dollar for dollar, like a dollar in, dollar out. It's like if you're good at base running, 
the, the, the time that you're spending on it is going to be tenfold. Like yeah. if you can put that amount of time into it, it's all, now all you got to worry about is getting on base. <laughs> That's you know, it. Yeah. The, guy, the guys, are like, guys like right. hanging up anyway, so wouldn't worry about it. You got to be yeah. intentional about the practice of base running. For sure. Yeah, but you can't steal first. That's for dad goes for. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, buddy. This has been awesome. But, yeah, that's, that's where I'm at, too, with the base running. That's where I was, like, I think it's where I, even the last conversation we had was on the base running system. And I just love the different systems. And I love – I put it in my game card. My weight – I call them weighted quality of bats now, you know, and uh, because basically it came down with, like, Wobo, you know, Woba, yeah. uh, when all that kind of made – for you know, but then I kind of thought – my mind was not every quality bat's the same, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's where I got, kind of came with that and, and the quality pit system. So I, I love that, and I always love like what you said. I think the the, the secret was in the, your highlighters mm-hmm. and seeing it on the lineup, man. That was huge, man. And yeah. I think uh, that's why, like, I've always just you just get some guys that just speak your language, you know. And yeah. you've definitely always been one of those guys for me, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. But. Man, I can't thank you enough for taking some time. We're here over an hour already, buddy. Um, are you good? Yeah. Oh, man, this has been great. Um, oh, man. Uh, I guess I, I was – it's a challenge for me because uh, I, I do – I fight the micromanaging of it is can you just walk me through like when you are going through – I'm going to get back to the staff stuff is like the staff duty sheets, the responsibility, you know, like you're trying to break down what everybody's doing. Um, is, is it's, it, do you fight the, where like, I, I just need you to do these things or is, are you still having the conversation with them about that? Or is it just all you just getting saying, I need you to do these things? Uh, no, these are the expectations of your job. And, okay. and, and one of the things that, that we talked about a lot is, doing your job so well that it helps the next person's job, you know, it makes the next person's job easier, things like that. So when you can be very clearly defined, I've seen this happen. Let me back up. because I've seen this happen before when you got people who they're not neglecting their duties, but they don't, they aren't intentional about their duties. And then they go try to help another department, but they try not department. They go try. I'm, I'm thinking about Charleston. Um, they go try to help, you know, little Johnny or Timmy or whatever. And the problem is you're not doing your job, like do your job, then when you have extra space, now you can go help and you can support. Uh, but the other thing, and obviously I wanted an incredibly collaborative environment, which we had, we had an incredibly collaborative environment. But again, the expectation was that your job just needed to make sure it was getting done. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'll go back to what I said before, like, do, do you need to do it or does it need just to get done? And, and if, if those jobs were, were points of accountability for you, uh, and you needed to dish them off onto somebody else to go work on a different project, and so be it. It just, you know, we, we talked a lot in our program about the world rewarding results, and and with that, um, that one was kind of the that was the end all be all of of discussions and conversations. Like, are you getting it done or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're not getting it done, if we've been explicit about what those job responsibilities are, and I look around, it's an easy way to evaluate it too. Like if I give you four main points of responsibility, your primary responsibilities, base running, hitting, um, uh, early work, like uh, player academic monitoring, things like that, uh, you're going to be held accountable for those things. And I think that's part of it as well is, is them understanding if I don't do my job, I'm going to get held accountable. 
right? Like that's a big, it's one of the biggest pieces for me. So hopefully I'm answering your question, but it, it basically, the idea of being very clear, very structured with how we, we built that staff responsibility sheet allowed people to just live in their roles. And it was, you know, I think that's what made us work so well together. And it, I guess another part is that like, part of that, is it something you collaboratively made together? You built this responsibility sheet together or is it something that just kind of came from like your vision of what you needed the program to do and knowing that, Hey, I, I don't want to take this on. I know I need to empower this guy to do it. So it, it mainly, there would be discussions about what do people want to get out of their careers? Because okay. one of my dream jobs, not the actual job, but the type of job uh, for a long time was having the type of job where I could hire and we would have like staff longevity for a long time. Cause I've had the great fortune of working with incredible people throughout the course of my career. But the nature of how those staffs were built was there's high turnover. You've yeah. got a full-time assistant who doesn't make a ton of money. You got GAs, you've got student assistants. So your role in their lives comes to how can I best prepare you for the next role that you, you were going to get and the next role that you want. So that would come out of a conversation you know, at the end of the year, at the end of the fall, we would do them at the end of the fall. And then obviously at the end of the year as well. Uh, but I would check in on those things. Like we'd go through our start, start, stop and continue. And I'd hear them all out. And then we would revisit, um, revisit where we were at on, um, on what they wanted to do for the next job. And then one of the, one of the questions that I would ask them is what do you need to be exposed to in order to be ready for your next job? If it made sense for that person with their skill set, with the space they were going to have in their responsibility, if it made sense for that person to take that on, then I would give it to them. But it was also an opportunity when they would express interest in, I would like to do this. And then you look at the rest of the job responsibility and you say, listen, that, that job is a little bit too big. Uh, and right now you might not be ready for it. I can put you in a position where you're assisting in that. So then you can, you, you can transition into that role maybe next year. So that to me is, is how that gets built. So it's, a, it's collaborative to the point where I hear what they want and need out of their career. Um, but obviously me having the 10,000 foot view of what I want in the organization or in the program, yeah. uh, you know, it, was, it was essentially, or at the end, it was my decision right. how things were going to get built. But I wasn't going to put everybody in a, in, a, in a position they weren't comfortable or didn't want to do because that's just counterproductive. You had the foundation of what these jobs were, and then you were able to customize it based off of where that guy wanted to go. Right. And you get to look every year when you're very intentional about this. You get to look at what are the functions of the job of running this, of running University of Charleston baseball, or what are the functions of running Concord baseball? Uh, and you get to define each, at the end of each year if there's some not, and if, if stuff comes up throughout the course of your year and you realize this job's not getting done by, anybody then you find a way to make it through the year you give it to somebody who can handle it but then at the end of the year that goes on the responsibility list that gets dumped out and it gets put back in like the scope of my jobs outside of being a ceo cfo and, and hr and the whole thing outside of that like the day-to-day -day other jobs that i had changed from year to year based off of the strengths and weaknesses of what who we had in our program um, so again it was allowing space for what the or what the program needed to be good, you got to allow space for that, and then allow that to grow, and that's why you have to be so intentional about it 
you know, if you do it at the end of the fall and then you do it again at the end of the year. And certainly as there were a couple of times where I had assistants who, who let me know long before they were leaving that they had another opportunity. Uh, and one guy had to talk him into it. Like he came in, he's like, Hey, I got a, I got a job at my other, you know, at this other, I got a job off from this other school and it was in January. And he's like, I was like, so you're taking it, right? Cause it was like a perfect fit for the guy. And it's like, ah, you know, the conversation's over. If you don't take it, I'm firing you. Like it's, yeah. it's that simple. Like, and, and it was just a funny story that goes along with that because he was such a, such a loyal, like good employee. Good. He was awesome with the guys. Like just, uh, just a plus guy. And what that did is it gave me the opportunity over the next six months to really dive deeper into what does our program need? And I, I had our staff responsibility sheet set for that year. And then I had another tab for the next year. And then I had another tab if we were going to get a hitting, a hitting coach. So being able to look at it that way allowed me to be way more intentional about what I was looking for. Because a lot of times, like I, I said this earlier, but I'll say it again. A lot of times when, when attrition happens or guys move on to bigger and better opportunities, uh, you, you're trying to fit what was, uh, you're trying to fill just the whole of, of just the void that, that is now left rather than looking at it completely different. Your staff has grown. They've grown by another year. The demands of, of what it takes to win have, have changed. So you have to be incredibly intentional, dump all that stuff out, then piece it back together. What are the main functions? Like what's Ryan Hunt really good at? I'll tell you a secret. There's not much he's not good at. Uh, you know, what's Dylan Mazzo good at? Same, same. He's stuck. And then you just trickle it in the whole way through and you're able to piece these things together um, to see how is how can we build this staff with clarity of, of responsibility in a way that University of Charleston baseball is going to be in the best position possible. Right. And then me again having to be the the, the Swiss Army knife a little bit. So huh. Wow. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Um, lots of digest. Lots of digest sure. for me. But I, I appreciate it. Um, I really appreciate. It. What do you What do you love now about Pro Bowl? Mm. What do you love about Pro Bowl now, man? I know There's you love your time at Charleston. You loved your college time. I, I, program. I know. Opportunity for me to leave Charleston. There's no problem. right. Well, so what do you love? What do you love about the Pro Bowl? I love the fact that you still get to make a difference. And I think that was one of the uh, – plus, I, well, let me back up. There is, I, I do love that, no doubt. But the fact that I get to work with some of the best and the brightest in, in baseball, uh, you know, the coordinator group that we have here, the, the staff that we have here, the access to the resources we have here, the problem that we're trying to solve here, um, which is the problem the other 29 teams are trying to solve is how do you win the World Series consistently? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not unique to us, but that's a, that's a motivating thing. Like, it's funny because this was something I explained to, to somebody. With, I had an, uh, an interview with another organization, and, and I talked about, they challenged me on the idea of, do you think you can, because I, I talked a lot in my interview about making an impact at the college level. And they're like, do you think you can do that at the professional level? And I said, absolutely. Like, 
I, I grew up, and this is, you know, a handful of Yankees know this. I grew up in a family that was diehard Red Sox. <laughs> like even, even my father has a, uh, who passed away in 04, has a field that's named after him. It's a scale replica of Fenway. <laughs> so I know what it's like. When the Red Sox were playing well, life was good. Yeah. When the Red Sox weren't, like it, it has this little, it has this way of affecting, affecting moods. You know what I mean? It's, it's really yeah. funny. And then uh, on the flight back from one of my interviews with, with the Yankees, I was sitting there and it hit me. Like there were like, I counted, there were like seven Yankee hats on the flight itself. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, either they're fans or they just like the hat. I'm going to bet they're fans. Like that is a part of their life. Yeah. So the, the impact that you have, you have the impact on dinner, on the dinner table. You got the impact on, you know, and then certainly when you zoom in a little bit more and you talk about our players, you have a chance to change family tree. I'm not talking, I am talking about for making players better so that they sign big contracts and financially they're set up for life. But the impact that you have at the professional level is actually to me, I like, I think if you say that you can only make a difference, you can make a bigger difference in college. I think you're not respecting the scope at which uh, you can you can impact lives at the professional level. Yeah. The amount of different players that you deal with, uh, the different backgrounds they come from, where a shift in perspective can turn somebody into a better father, brother, husband, uh, boss, coworker, all of that in turn. And this is going to sound kind of like fluffy and, and pie in the sky, but you're changing a family tree. That's it. If I, if I can make somebody a better person because they got the opportunity to represent the New York Yankees, then I have made an impact. Whether my, whether my time with them is over two months or whether it's with two years. Like the really cool part about here in this, in this role is uh, being in this role for two years now down here, I've had an opportunity to get to know these players. They've had a familiar face in front of them for two years. Uh, even during the pandemic, we did some, you know, some remote education and different things like that and ways to keep them engaged. So uh, they're familiar with me. They're familiar with my perspective and, and how I view things and, and stuff like that. So that's my way of impacting. I get to impact a whole bunch of people. If I'm, if I'm at University of Charleston, I'm impacting 60 people between players and staff and, and stuff like that. No doubt, big, big impact because it's a different type of impact. You're with them sure. for four or five years. So the, the, the density at which they are getting or the repetition that they're getting on your message and your perspective is certainly very strong. But, uh, you know, I, I think if you can if you can microwave the ability to make an impact on people's lives, uh, then this is a this is an incredible experience. But I think the amount that I've learned uh, has been tremendous. Uh, I've got mentors every time I turn a corner. I, I've had the opportunity to to really dive in and do some things from a personal development standpoint that have helped learn Spanish, like uh, being, you know, in a, in the type of management position that I'm in now where I am, I am here to make sure that the, the vision of the coordinators gets carried out at the Dominican Academy. And I'm, you know, managing that bubble. I'm managing the people, managing the relationships, I should say, uh, above me to make sure that I'm doing the best I can in support of the New York Yankees. So there have been, and I haven't been in that position in a long time. Like when you work in an, in an athletic department, the thing I love about the two leaders that I work for is they let you do your job. Yeah. They were there in support, but it, it, this is so, this is, you really got to run your program, right? 
where the buck kind of stopped with you, decisions got made, and you just go do them. And, and here, I've learned a lot about you know, the impact of, of being a good teammate and, and putting yourself in a position to not only uh, make the people in your charge better at their job, but to do your job so well that it, it makes your boss's job easier or things like that. Like it, that, that to me has been, been really exciting. Coach Andrew Wright with the New York Yankees, Player Development Department, Director of the DR, Dominican Republic, Baseball Operations, just killing it as always. And I just can't thank him enough. Can't thank him enough for all the wisdom he shares, such as just getting into all the leadership stuff. Um, and I, I just love how he can just break everything down, categorize things, and helping create clarity you know and he talked about that uh and hell it just how it came down to those things as we create tons of clarity for the expectations for each person's job are we empowering it are we getting out of the way do they have what they need to do a really good job and are we holding them accountable great processes and i love his language of being a multiplier and of course he you know he told he got, got another great reader I think you see from a lot of great coaches is they are readers, um, at least diving into content, learning, but a book, Multiplier, but just that shows what kind of leader a leader does. So, But Coach Wright, if you haven't followed him and you're not following him on Twitter, is a great follow there. And I know I've gotten a lot better because of Coach Coach Wright, uh, if you're not following me on Twitter, it's at abwright9. Just phenomenal. And I can't thank you enough, Coach Wright. Appreciate all you do for the game and the mission that you've continued. I think one of the biggest things, too, we kind of hit on was, like, when he got to a point in his career, things weren't what he wanted, and he changed himself. When you see so many other guys talk about the kids have changed, it's about this. We're going to blame other people about why they're not getting the results. And Coach Wright took it upon himself to look inward, change himself, change his mindset about coaching, about what his role was. And when he changed himself, the environment around him, everything else changed. And I think that's a huge, valuable lesson, even just taking, taking through that um, from his story and his message. So, again, Coach Wright, thank you enough. Thank you guys for holding on to us here, hour and a half. Um, there's a lot of me, we, we, we talked for a good bit too. And, uh, it, it was that stuff for us and I really enjoyed it and just loved it and hope you guys did too. And big thanks to Will Miner and the Netting Pros guy. Again, uh, check out those guys at Netting Pros and Will Miner does a great job. There's always giveaways in there doing great things for facilities and doing great stuff for our game. And again, happy to be a part of the Net Pros chat family. So Keep sharing the podcast. Hopefully, uh, glad to help, want to help. That's what the mission, help grow the game and grow it with the people that are doing it for the right reasons and want to leave it better than what they found it. So until next week, keep getting better.